Ecclesiastes chapter 1, just reading to begin with the first three verses. And these are the words of Christ to the people of God. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What profit has a man from all his labor in which he toils under the sun? Please be seated. And let's pray together. Father, we ask for your blessing upon your word. We pray that you would give clarity of speech and clarity of understanding. We pray, Father, as we consider this book tonight and how to approach it, that your Holy Spirit would, even as the writer to this book says, would take your truth like nails driven into our hearts, or that we might profit from what you have revealed. We ask for much grace, and we ask for fruitfulness from your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Sinclair Ferguson, in his wonderful little gospel booklet titled The Pundit's Folly, and speaking for the pundit, which is a short book on on the book of Ecclesiastes, speaking for the pundit, he says this, You want to have life under the sun? Here it is. Have it. Life is sick. We are sick. This is the pundit's message. Painful and embarrassing though it may be, you need to vomit out your you need to vomit out of your soul everything that is destroying your life and will eventually lead you to an endless emptiness. The fear of God is the medicine you need. How do we approach this book and how do we benefit from it? Peter Barnes, in his brief work on Ecclesiastes entitled Both Sides Now, Ecclesiastes and the Human Condition, he gives a brief brief quote from a British author from the 20th century by the name of Hugh Kingsmill. Hugh Kingsmill, in 1944, wrote a book of essays on genealogies entitled The Poisoned Crown. Peter Barnes writes about him and his quote. He says, in the dark days of World War II, Hugh Kingsmill made the perceptive observation, quote, we expect immortal satisfactions from mortal conditions and lasting happiness in the midst of universal change. We expect immortal satisfaction from mortal conditions and lasting happiness in the midst of universal change. Hugh Kingsmill died in 1949. Whether he was a Christian or not, I do not know. But his quote does raise some very crucial, critical questions. 
immortal satisfaction? Is there such a thing as satisfaction that does not end? Lasting happiness? Is there really such a thing? If so, what is it? What is this satisfaction? What is this happiness? And where can it be found, even even if it can be found? A sober approach to Ecclesiastes addresses those questions and more. But how do we approach the seeming enigmas in what Barry Webb said was perhaps the most enigmatic book in the Old Testament? I think a sober approach to this inspired and infallible book would first of all be a reminder of the words from chapter 12 and verse 11 where the writer says that the words of the wise are like goads and the words of scholars are like well-driven nails given by one shepherd. And the words he's referring to are some of the words that he has written. And of course, ultimately, this one shepherd is Christ. For in Ecclesiastes, it's not just the words of a king at times in despair at times hating life. But these are the thoughts of a king and the words of a king inspired by the Holy Spirit, which are the very words of Christ to you, to us. So to help us approach Ecclesiastes, there are three questions I want to ask and attempt to answer. They're real simple questions. Who, when, and what? Who, when, and what? Who wrote this book? Question number one. When was it written, which will provide some context for us as we approach reading it, meditating upon it, thinking upon the book as a whole? And what does it say? What did the writer of this book have to say to us? So the first question, who wrote Ecclesiastes? Give us three answers to this and a conclusion. But from the text itself, I think we can learn quite a bit. Chapter 1 and verse 1, we read these words. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. The writer was referring to himself as a preacher. The Hebrew word is koaleth. It describes one who gathers an assembly together and speaks to them. This preacher refers to himself as the son of David, king in Jerusalem. And then again in verse 12 of the same chapter, I, the preacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. And I set my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all that is done under heaven. So we know from these two text alone, these two verses alone, that the writer refers to himself as the son of David, the king over Israel in Jerusalem. But in chapter 1, in verse 16, we learn a little bit more about the writer of this work. It says, I communed with my heart saying, look, I have attained greatness and have gained more wisdom than all who were before me in Jerusalem. 
My heart has understood great wisdom and knowledge, and I set my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is grasping for the wind. He refers to himself as one who had gained more wisdom than all who were than all who were before him. We know from 1 Kings chapter 3 and verse 12 as the Lord speaks to Solomon in a dream as Solomon had prayed for wisdom. The scriptures tell us in 1 Kings 3:12, quote, "Behold, I have done according to your words. See, I have given you a wise and understanding heart." So there has not been anyone like you before you, nor shall any like you arise after you. It was none wiser than the writer of this book, and he claims that for himself, before him. And God's promise was that no king would arise after him, like him. Chapter 2 in verses 4 through 9, we learn again a little bit more about the writer of this work. He says, I made my works great. I built myself houses and planted myself vineyards. I made myself gardens and orchards. I planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made myself water pools from which to water the growing trees of the grove. I acquired male and female servants and had servants born in my house. Yes, I had greater possessions of herds and flocks than all who were in Jerusalem before me. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the special treasures of kings and the provinces. I acquired male and female singers, the delights of the sons of men, and musical instruments of all kinds. Chapter 2, verses 4 through 9 is simply a condensed version of what you would find in 1 Kings chapter 4. Verses 20 through 34 of the expansion and the wealth and the prosperity that both Israel and Solomon experienced under his kingship. But finally, we turn to chapter 12, we all, where we also learn something else about the writer of this, this book. In chapter 12, verses 9 and 10, We read, and moreover, because the preacher was wise, he still taught the people knowledge. Yes, he pondered and sought out and set in order many proverbs. The preacher sought out to find acceptable words, and what was written was upright, words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and the words of scholars are like well-driven nails given by one shepherd. So he tells us that he was one who had given many proverbs. My conclusion, based on the text itself and a couple of other considerations, is that Solomon is the author of Ecclesiastes. The second reason not only comes from the text itself, but it also comes from the history of faith, that the church pre-enlightenment The consensus of the Christian church before the Enlightenment was that Solomon was the author of this book. In the post-Enlightenment years, the view of the authorship of Ecclesiastes changed. And the arguments for another author pretty much rest on two primary pillars. Some grammar 
and language. And it's in my opinion, and we don't have time to go over those arguments tonight, but it is my opinion that neither of those two pillars that you look at the grammar that they quote or the language that they say proves that Solomon did not write this book. Neither of those pillars can stand the weight of the internal evidence and the history of faith. My final reason for believing that it is Solomon, and I'm convinced that it is Solomon who wrote these these words, is that this view is still held today by many pastors and theologians whom I were to name you would know. So it's not an aberrant view. It's an historical, I think biblical, and a reasonable view that the author of this book was none other than King Solomon. So then we ask the second question, when? When then did he write it? What, when was it written and what is the context of these, of these words? It's a very interesting question. Uh, Solomon reigned in the 10th century B.C. for 40 years. He was the final king of the United Kingdom of Israel. If we read chapter 2, verses 4 through 11, which we just read just a moment ago, most of or all of Solomon's buildings and his building projects were probably completed before this book was written. Even in chapter 5, of Ecclesiastes in verse 1, Solomon says, Walk prudently when you go to the house of God and draw near to hear rather than to give the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they do evil. Solomon had built a house for the Lord, a house of worship, and he draws the attention of the reader to be prudent, to walk prudently when they go to the house of of God. I think it's reasonable to think that the readers of these words would have known that he was referring to the temple, the place of God's worship. In 1 Kings chapter 11, and I'd ask you to turn there. One other text to give us context. So Solomon, being the author of this book, at what portion of his reign did he write it? In the 40 years of his reign, probably at least in the last 20 years, probably in the last 10 years, if not closer to his death. We read in 1 Kings chapter 11 and verses 1 through 4, some very sad words. But King Solomon loved many foreign women, as well as the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites, from the nations of whom the Lord had said to the children of Israel, You shall not intermarry with them, nor they with you. Surely they will turn away your hearts after other gods. Solomon clung to these in love, and he had 700 wives princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. So it was so, when Solomon was old, that his wives turned his heart after other gods, 
and his heart was not loyal to the Lord, his God. And it's interesting that God gives us this little bit of information within the context of horrible sin. For he says his heart was turned away from the Lord when he was old. In the latter part of his life. So this is what we can conclude up to this point of the when. So Israel was a united kingdom under Solomon. He was granted a world-renowned wisdom. 1 Kings 4.34 says, And men of all nations from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom, they came to hear the wisdom of Solomon. He oversaw the building of the temple in Jerusalem and the building of his own house and many other buildings that are detailed for us in 1 Kings chapter 9. The building of the temple and the building of his own house, if they were built at the same time, it took 13 years. The Ark of the Covenant was brought into the temple. Solomon blesses the assembly of Israel and dedicates the temple of the Lord. And in 1 Kings chapter 9, verses 15 and following, we find such a great expansion and an accumulation of wealth and possessions in a time of peace. Israel had expanded their territory. The wealth of the nation and the wealth of Solomon had increased in abundance. We're even told in 1 Kings 9.26 that Solomon commissioned the building of ships. Evidently, he had a navy that he built for himself and for the nation. So all of these things had happened, and Solomon is living and leading through these events But near the end of his life, King Solomon loved many foreign women. In 1 Kings chapter chapter 11, verses 9 through 13, we are told that God became angry towards Solomon and told him that he would tear tear the nation from him, that the nation would not be united anymore, but that the nation would be divided. So here is a man. An old man, probably within the last years of his life, looking over his life, reviewing what he had done, thinking about his labors, about his wealth, his pleasures, thinking about his nation and his role within that nation, thinking of the people of Israel and their lot in life and of others considering much, much more. And he gathers the people to him as Koheleth, as the preacher. And he gathers them as an assembly, and he says to them, in the light of this history and in the light of his contemplations, the first words out of his mouth, out of his, in, his, in, in this book, are some of the most emphatically written words in the Hebrew language. Vanity of vanities, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Five times in one verse. What profit has a man from all his labor under the sun? 
They may have expected to hear words of wisdom. They may have expected to hear a more positive message. After all, they were at peace. The kingdom was united. All was well. Yet that was not Solomon's words as he began this work. He has now become earthbound in his thinking. In most of his diagnosis, not all of his diagnosis, but in, all of, in most of his diagnosis of the human condition, he is a man who is sober in his reflections and he is candid in his conclusions. He's somebody we need to hear. Not just because of the context in which he writes, but because God has these words here for us to hear. So the third question then is what does Solomon say? And how does it help us approach this book? Twelve brief chapters. Within the framework of these chapters, there are several themes that are pieced together. They are interlocking themes to drive home his conclusion that we come to in chapter 12. Let us hear the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments For this is man's all. This is man's all. At the beginning he says all is vanity. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. At the end he says fear God and keep his commandments. This is the conclusion of the matter. For this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment including every secret thing. Whether good or evil. And the book unites these these themes throughout the book in order to bring us and point us to this final conclusion. What are these themes? Well, I want to mention the five most prominent themes within the book. We won't have time to look at all five, but, but we will comment on some of it. The first is the theme of vanity. Mentioned 36 times in Ecclesiastes, 36 times. The second theme, along with vanity, again, these are themes with interlocking pieces. They relate to one another. Is life under the sun. Life under the sun. Mentioned nine times in the book of Ecclesiastes. Of those nine times, seven of them are used in order for us to understand what vanity means. The third theme is the theme of the brevity of life and the certainty of death to all. The brevity of life and the certainty of death to all. This theme, whether directly mentioning death or referring to the end of life, is mentioned over 20 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. There's also the theme that is threaded throughout the book within these interlocking pieces of the wise and the fool. You might say of wisdom and folly. But again, he contrasts the wise and the fool. But he does so depending upon the context in the book 
Your conclusions may differ as to what he's really saying about the wise and the fool. Because there are times when he there's a time when he says, whether you're wise and you're a fool, you both end up in the same place. So you have to understand how these pieces interlock and how they affect and impact and support one another in interpreting the book. But the final theme. And really, it may surprise you, I hope not, but it may surprise you that the final theme is God and the fear of God. The name for God used in the book of Ecclesiastes is Elohim. It's used 44 times. 44 times. More than vanity more than wisdom, more than life and death, more than life under the sun. The book of Ecclesiastes has 220 verses in the book, and 44 of those verses contain the word Elohim. So all of these themes are connected and support and teach us and reveal to us and drive us to his ultimate conclusion that the fear of God and the keeping of, of his commandments is our all. We're not going to consider each of these themes due to time. But what I want to do is to make four propositions derived from these themes that will hopefully help us to a sober approach to this book. Four propositional statements first one is this, Solomon gave his heart to consider everything under the sun. Solomon gave his heart to consider everything under the sun. This is what he tells us in chapter 1 and verse 12. I, the preacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I set my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom concerning all that is done under heaven. This burdensome task God has given to the sons of man by which they may be exercised. Solomon gives his heart to consider everything under heaven, everything under the sun. Under the sun is referring to Everything in this world under the sun, in contrast to the things that are above or transcend this world, is the emphasis on the temporal versus the eternal, the earthly versus the heavenly, life without God versus life with God, the transient, the temporary versus the transcendent. He's looking at this world horizontally. He's looking at his work and his labors and his wealth and his possessions and all that he has accomplished. And he's looking at it as though it all it has to do is under the sun. What does he consider? He considers education, mirth, pleasure, and laughter. He considers wine to gratify the flesh. He considers wisdom and folly, madness. 
He gives his heart to consider madness and justice, the oppression of the poor, labor and toil, riches and poverty, the abundance of good, material wealth, hedonism to its fullest. It's what he gave his heart to search out. He looked upon all that the world had to give him, all of his labor, his pursuits, as though it were for this life only, as though all that we have is under the sun, as all that he had and all that he knew for meaning and purpose could be found under the sun, in this life only, no God, no transcendent being or purpose that rises above the horizontal gaze. There's no wonder that Solomon, if he considers all of his labors and all of his work as just transient, without the transcendent God in view, that we read from his own pen that he hated life and he hated labor and he despaired in his thoughts. Chapter 2, verses 17 and following. So where are we left? If we're considering everything under the sun, nothing transcendent, we're just looking at everything that we can see, feel, touch, and have, where are we left? Or maybe we're left in the words of Edward Fitzgerald, where he said, Ah, fill the cup. What boots it to repeat? Time is slipping underneath our feet. Unborn, tomorrow, and dead, yesterday. Why fret about them if today is sweet? If this is all there is, we might as well just eat, drink, and be merry. For tomorrow, we die. Let me ask you a question. If you could, if you could have anything you wanted, anything, if you could have anything you wanted, and you could have it right now, and you could have it for the rest of your life. What would you want? What would give you happiness? You could ask for it and get it. Well, that leads us to our second proposition. Remember your answer in your mind to that question. But this leads us to the second proposition, that his conclusion, Solomon's conclusion after considering everything under the sun, when, considered, when considering that that is all there is, his conclusion is that all is vanity and grasping for the wind. The word vanity is sometimes translated, translated meaningless. One commentator uses the word frustration. He even repeats it like it's repeated in Ecclesiastes. Frustrations of frustrations. Everything is frustration. But I think a better word, a better understanding and translation of this word, which may be more specific to the meaning of what Solomon meant, is the word breath, 
vapor, or mist. I think that's why, paralleled with the emphasis of vanity, Solomon tells us that it is like chasing after the wind. Can you catch the wind? Can you chase the wind? It's just a vapor. It's just a mist. It's just a moment. It's that which is not lasting. It is transient and in the long run profitless. And isn't that what Jesus said in Mark chapter 8 and verse 36? For what will it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? What if we have everything on the horizontal level? What if we had everything under the sun and we owned everything, had every pleasure, every item, every possession, all the wealth, and we had it all? And you lose your soul. What profit is there in all that stuff? And that's Solomon's conclusion, is that everything under the sun is grasping for the wind. It's interesting. In Genesis 4, verses 1 and 2, we read these words. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. And then she bore again. This time his brother Abel, or Abel. That word is the same word in Ecclesiastes for vanity, for mist, a breath. Eve and Adam named their child something that means a mist or breath that doesn't last. And Abel's life was but a vapor, a very short life, and he died. Do you know what you see when you go to work, when you go to the store, when you drive down the road and you look at the other drivers? When you look at mankind as a whole, do you know what you see? You see for the most part, not 100%, but you see for the most part, people hustling and bustling, grasping after the wind. Looking for that next thing that next job, that next promotion, that next item, that next thing that will make them happy, that will bring them pleasure, that will bring some form of meaning in their life. But you know what happens as, as we, as a people in, in, by nature, and we're seeking after things that, like grasping after the wind, we, we can never really find anything lasting. So what does mankind do when they're searching after happiness and they buy that thing or they get that promotion or they find wealth? Well, they find that eventually they're not happy anymore. That that same level of emotion 
has subsided. So what do they do? The next breeze that comes by, they're grasping for the wind again. And time after time after time, nothing satisfies them. Nothing satisfies the human heart under the sun. Nothing. Blaise Pascal once said, since men are unable to cure death, misery, and ignorance, they can, they can find happiness, they imagine they can find happiness by not, by not thinking about such things. Distraction. But if all is vanity under the sun, this brings us to our third proposition, and we'll go through this, this quickly, that death awaits us all. Death awaits us all. I was in a planning meeting when I used to work for, for Marriott, and it was a planning meeting. We had several of our engineering leaders around the table, and there's a gentleman sitting next to me, but his name was Dan, and I don't even remember uh, the conversation and why this was brought up. All I remember was the specifics of the conversation that I had with him. And I turned to Dan and I said, isn't it interesting that we talk about everything except what is most important? We talk about everything, but there's something that every human being is going to face that is real and true to every living person, yet we never, ever, ever talk about it. And he said, what is that? I said, death. And he said, that's why I live every day the way I live every day. To get the most out of every day. He spends every day grasping for the wind. And he doesn't get it on, day, on Monday, so he goes through the same thing on Tuesday. Every day thinking he's going to reach that golden, immortal satisfaction. And it will never come under heaven. This brings us to our last proposition. That with the fear of God, even in the light of his judgment, there is wisdom and all things have meaning. There is wisdom and all things have meaning. The fear of God. That is his conclusion of the matter. This is our all. We cannot fear God with a filial fear unless we know him. And we cannot fear him with a filial fear unless we trust him. And we cannot fear him if we don't love him. The fear, of the, God, the fear of God begins with knowing God as your father. And that happens only because of his grace and because of his amazing love and mercy in Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom upon a cross as the perfect God-man 
to forgive us of our sins, to redeem us from lawlessness, to create in us a new heart so that our eyes are no longer fixed on the, tran- on the transient, vaporous mist in which we live, but our, but our hearts and our eyes are, are transported even, are, are changed to view the transcendent, the eternal, the God who created us, who holds all things by the word of his power, who works all things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. All things. So that the things that happen under the sun have meaning because he who is transcendent above all has loved us and given himself for us that he might reconcile us to himself. So that now when I get up on Monday morning, there is purpose in my life. Not because I have a horizontal job and not because I have a family, not because I have children that are still living. It is because God is God. And he sits above the heavens. And though he transcends all of his creation, he has humbled himself to be our father. And out of an awe-respecting love, we fear him. So let me ask you in closing. If you could ask for anything in the world, Anything. What would it be? What do you desire more than anything in life? Or put it in the words of Solomon, what is your all? May we come to answer that question that I would want to know, to trust, to love, and to fear God through Jesus Christ, for this is my all, so that in him, in him, I find not what is amiss, but what is temporary, I find something for my soul that is eternal, that is present and perfect, that is secure, that is eternally satisfying with lasting happiness. For this is man's all, to fear God and to keep his commandments. Let us pray. Father, bless your word to our hearts this evening. You are the perfect shepherd of our souls, the perfect physician for our wounds and our hearts. And you know, Father, where each and every one of us in this room are tonight spiritually in the condition of our hearts. Lord, apply your word according to your will. In Jesus' name.
Amen.